As we begin part 10 of City of Refuge, a quick warning. This episode contains some unsettling descriptions of war. Listener discretion is advised. It was just a letter, a simple, angry letter from someone who hadn't even read his book. But that's all it took to tear Philip Halley down from the high he had experienced while researching and writing about Le Chambon. So I wrote Les Denison Blood Pichette and became converted, a different person of sorts, for a while. The letter, which came from a man who had only read a magazine review of the book, told Halley that he was wrong, that nothing of importance had happened in Le Chambon. It was just a bunch of eccentrics helping a few refugees, and that's not the sort of thing that shapes history. Only great armies do that, the letter explained. Halley began composing a response in his head, asking the man, how is saving thousands of people's lives nothing? How is having the courage and the will to shelter all those people for four years while under Nazi occupation nothing? But he never got these questions down on paper. Somewhere in the midst of thinking through his response, he began to doubt his own words. That's when he said to himself, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something in your heart resents the village. Something in your heart resents the village. As more time passed, Halley's feelings of resentment toward the village grew even stronger. They didn't have to do the things he did or see the things he saw as a combat artilleryman tasked with laying waste to German cities. I saw people burning. I saw heads or an arm just lying there in the road. And yet, despite believing such things to be despicable, Halley felt what he and the Allies had done was necessary. It took decent murderers like me to stop Hitler. Murderers who had compunctions, but who murdered nonetheless. And if the circumstances were similar, he said, I wouldn't hesitate to do it again. So what does it mean that the man who put this remarkable story of nonviolence on the map no longer found it inspiring? Does that lend greater credence to the naysayers? People like the person who wrote Halley that letter? Should we dismiss the hope that Le Chambon represents? That we, ordinary people, have the ability to confront and even stop the evil we see in our world? As much as we've been focused on the particulars in this story, we haven't done much analyzing. So, in this final episode of City of Refuge, that's what we're going to do. We're going to get to the bottom of what this story really means and how its lessons can help us confront some of the crises we face today. From Waging Nonviolence, I'm your host, Brian Farrell, and this is City of Refuge. Philip Halley was a fascinating man, if you haven't gotten that already. His worldview was informed as much by his studies of philosophy and ethics as his own life experiences, mainly his youth growing up poor and Jewish on the tough streets of 1930s Chicago, as well as his time as a soldier during World War II. Just as interesting, though, is that his worldview, particularly in his later years, seemed to be constantly shifting, sometimes dramatically so. As a result, I have to admit, it's been hard to fully grasp where he landed after writing about Le Chambon and then suddenly resenting it. But since he died in 1994, I couldn't just ask him. Thankfully, though, I did manage to find his daughter, who helped give me important context. 
he was just a very hyperbolic person in some ways. That's just how he was. He lived life very emotionally. This is Michalina Halley, who was a teenager when her father's book came out. I've thought a lot about this because my dad's been dead for almost 25 years. He definitely had PTSD. While it wasn't surprising to hear her say this, given the things her father did and saw during the war, it helped to hear it from a family member. He and I were really close, um, but there was only one time that he talked to me about what happened to him in the war. The only other time Michalina heard him talk about it was in the 1988 documentary Facing Evil, which you've heard a number of clips from already. In one scene, he talks quite candidly about the flashbacks he would experience due to the near-constant ringing in his ears from having been so close to heavy artillery. I listen to the ringing in my ear, and and I see those heads, especially those heads. Beautiful young people. Hearing her father's words today, she feels particularly sad to know how much he struggled with his experiences during the war. You know, I just think how much more he could be helped now if they had had that diagnosis. That said, Philip Halley was never fully overcome by his PTSD. My father could put any of that aside to be a great dad. And he was able to analyze himself. He may not have had our current advancements in therapy, but he had an idea of what was going on in his head. He knew that the source of his resentment toward Le Chambon, stirred by that letter, was the fact that he was in an existential bind. Because I, I want my cake and eat it too. I want to believe in the precious life and be a killer too. And because I feel this way, I have to pay a price. Morally, I have an obligation to pay a price, and the price is agony. And I pay it. Halley also knew that he wasn't alone in feeling that way. Now that labyrinth, that jungle of thought and feeling is my condition. And it's the condition not only of Vietnam veterans who came from an unpopular war, but from all veterans who are just have a modicum of decency. So it was at this point that Halley decided it might actually be more beneficial for him to study someone more like himself than the people of Le Chambon. He felt that they were too good for him to understand. He needed to learn from someone with his background someone who fit his description of a decent killer. But it may surprise you who he turned to for this. Remember Julius Schmeling, the German major who may have helped protect Le Chambon from Nazi reprisals? Halley had always found himself intrigued by the major, but in the course of writing his book, he never got Schmeling's full story. All he knew was what the people of Le Chambon had told him, or what he had read in André Trochme's memoirs. So he set out to find more information and hoped that, in learning to appreciate someone as morally ambiguous as Schmeling, he might learn to appreciate himself a bit better too. Unfortunately for Halley, the major had passed away almost a decade earlier, in 1973. But his middle-aged children were willing to be interviewed. So Halley visited them in Germany and even got to read through Schmeling's journals. The whole time he was expecting to find some simple explanation for why the Major showed mercy to so many people. Perhaps he was religious, as Andre had thought. Or perhaps since he had taught history and literature, he had developed some humanistic theory about the world. But as it turned out, Schmeling was non-religious and non-ideological. According to Halley, he was simply a person who, quote, made room for thoughts and acts of love. Nothing big, you definitely couldn't call him a hero. 
It's not like he saved everyone in the Haute-Loire region. Nor did he ever try to undermine Nazi objectives or publicly disavow himself of their evil deeds. He simply wasn't as bad as most others in his position, and his non-actions prevented the loss of perhaps thousands of lives. Nevertheless, it's worth noting that this interpretation has been controversial. Affording a Nazi officer the benefit of the doubt is bound to do that. And there are certainly other factors that protected the plateau that had nothing to do with Schmeling, namely its remoteness, which disincentivized the Nazis from stationing many troops there. In the end, though, it seems Halley's study of Schmeling, which he wrote about in essays over the final years of his life, helped him accept the idea of imperfect goodness. In his words, he said, I have learned that ethics is not simply a matter of good and evil. It is a matter of mixtures. We are not all called upon to be perfect, but we can make a little real difference in a mainly cold and indifferent world. Not long after wrapping up his research into major Schmeling, Halley was struck, almost literally, by another way to look at the goodness exhibited in Le Chambon. We had a hurricane in uh, Middletown, Connecticut, a couple of years ago. We watched it uproot our favorite chestnut tree. And then all of a sudden, there was a blue sky, and around this blue was this vast, raging hurricane. The fact that such a bright, hopeful blue could persist in the middle of a harrowing storm really spoke to Halley. I feel now that we can push back and expand the blue. We have to make room for love, even the most vicious and destructive of us, perhaps especially the most vicious and destructive of us. This seemed to give Halley some peace of mind. It was a way to square his conflicting feelings, and in his final words on the subject, for the 1994 reissue of his landmark book, he said the story of Le Chambon gave him a feeling of unsullied joy, something necessary and useful killing did not. And that's because the people of Le Chambon fulfilled what he considered to be one of the only basic universal facts, the belief that it is better to help than hurt. Knowing this, it's impossible not to conclude that finding the story of Le Chambon had made Philip Halley's life demonstrably better. He was really, you know, facing despair before he found the story of Le Chambon. It really pulled him out of that. That's Halley's daughter, Michalina, once again. You know, then he loved going to do the lectures and talking to people who were involved or who had similar stories and just to focus on the goodness as opposed to being mired in the evil and misery that he had kind of put himself into for all those years. This idea of imperfect goodness probably would have resonated with the Trochmes as well. As much as Halley painted them and Le Chambon, in his own mind, as the ideal of ethical perfection, they certainly never saw things that way. Remember what Magda said in an earlier episode? When we speak of nonviolent resistance in Le Chambon, it doesn't mean that all the people in Le Chambon were nonviolent. It means that they understood the situation of that period. They understood that the Jews were to be saved. It doesn't mean that it was a conversion to nonviolence or that it was going to last forever. In other words, the Trochmes weren't trying to operate in idealistic conditions, just reality, which was a mixed bag. And they didn't see themselves as above reproach, as you'll recall. I do not believe I am better than other men. Like everyone else, I have to take some responsibility for wars. 
As much as they opposed war, they knew they couldn't bury their heads in the sand over it. And by the time Hitler invaded Poland, they weren't going to waste time arguing that it shouldn't be fought. They knew it wasn't that simple, that the time to stop the war had already passed, and that, frankly, ending war meant addressing a slew of underlying injustices. Outlawing war would mean eliminating the causes of war, patriotic arrogance, the individual or collective profit that drives our actions, competition for vital resources, the oppression and exploitation of one nation by another, racism, and the cult of military glory. So when Halley became obsessed with the idea that Le Chambon, or even a thousand Le Chambons, as he said, wouldn't have stopped Hitler, he may have been right, but he also was missing the point. They weren't trying to stop Hitler's militaries. They were trying to defeat his agenda. In reality, rescuers were the only people who defeated the Nazis. Yes, the military obviously defeated the Nazis, too. The Third Reich was destroyed. But one of the primary goals of the Third Reich was the murder of people. And the only people who really effectively resisted those murders were the rescuers. That's Pierre Sauvage director of the film, Weapons of the Spirit. I think that there's no minimizing the fact that the people who acted were people who felt that there was simply no choice but to act. It was absolutely obvious to them. And what they accomplished really needs to be better understood. So let's examine some numbers. There were roughly 350,000 Jews in France just prior to the German invasion in 1940. While 77,000 were eventually murdered in the camps, an absolutely horrifying number, somewhere around 75% of that pre-war population survived. That's one of the highest survival rates of Jews in any occupied country. There were a number of factors that made this possible. One is that official documents like identification papers were issued locally rather than by the central government. This made forgery very easy. In fact, there were around 140 forgery teams around the country. Another reason for the high survival rate was that France bordered two countries that weren't persecuting Jews, Switzerland and Spain. That made escape a viable solution for many, as we heard in this series. A much larger number, maybe even the majority of Jews in France during the war, survived without escaping and without false papers. It helped that Jews had more places to hide, for the first two years, there was the unoccupied zone. But there were also areas of France that were controlled by Italy, which wasn't interested in deporting Jews. Nevertheless, those who survived the war in France could not have done so without some help. Perhaps it was a meal, some short-term shelter, a tip-off on a raid, or a blind eye. Such help wasn't just limited to Jews in France, either. Historians tell us, and this is probably a very generous estimate, that one out of 200 people did anything to help a Jew during the Holocaust. Anything at all, even giving a crust of bread. This is author and Holocaust scholar Patrick Henry. Don't ask me how people establish such figures, but, you know, it means that most people turn the other way. In fact, it's likely that the people who offered help, as we saw on the plateau, were repeat offenders. Some were just particularly inclined to help, while the vast majority of Europe was not. I don't condemn anybody for anything they didn't didn't do. I, I, I want to celebrate people who did do what now looks like unquestionably was the right thing to do. The people who risked the most and did so at the greatest risk 
these are the people we consider the rescuers. And there's actually an estimate for the number of Jews across Europe that they saved. So we're talking about between 150,000 and 300,000 people. That number represents about 5 to 10% of the 3 million Jews in Europe that survived the war. 6 million, of course, did not. And this is a good point to note that the rescuers weren't exclusively Christian, because that is often the implication. The truth is, Jews played a role in their own survival as well. There were many Jews who risked their lives to, to save other Jews during the Holocaust, and they need to be recognized. What Patrick means by this is that they haven't received the same awards that non-Jewish rescuers have received. Awards like the one Yad Vashem gave to the Trokmes and the people of the Plateau. That's typically because non-Jewish rescuers are seen as having sacrificed their safety, whereas Jewish rescuers were already in danger simply because they were Jewish. There are some people that don't feel it's the same thing. Um, I think risking your life to save another person, that's what unites these two groups over any kind of religious differences. What's more, Patrick thinks giving the same awards to Jewish rescuers as non-Jewish rescuers would be a way of fighting anti-Semitism today. And it, it, would, it would also serve to further discredit the myth that the Jews were led to the slaughter like sheep. That myth is that it's blaming the victim, and um, it's very comforting to people who didn't do anything to help the Jews during the Holocaust. This is why Pat has worked hard to promote Madeleine Dreyfus's story. Madeleine's story and, you know, is, is just a perfect exemplification of Jewish resistance. And Jewish resistance took many forms. But it was nonviolent resistance that saved the lives of Jews. It, it, basically, it was not violent resistance. You couldn't defeat this machine violently. Even Jewish partisans, fighters like the Bilsky brothers, who were depicted in the 2008 film Defiance, knew violence was a losing cause, and they more or less tried to avoid it. Tuvia Bilsky said, there are so few Jews still alive that it's more important to save the life of a Jew than to kill a Nazi. So that kind of makes you see them again in, in a kind of a nonviolent way, trying to avoid, avoid conflict to save the lives of the Jews that they had, you know, together in the forest. So. Pierre Sauvage was also quick to note the crucial role of nonviolence during the Holocaust. I came to realize it's, it's a particular irony that Jews don't attach special significance to nonviolence, because it was really people who were engaging in nonviolence who were the people who helped us in our hour of need. Now, Pierre wasn't discounting the importance of defeating Hitler militarily. God knows that was necessary, too. He just had another point in mind, one that few would ever consider. The people who were engaging in violence were ignoring the plight of people who were being persecuted and murdered. That is to say, they were fighting for other reasons, fighting to prevent or overturn German occupation. On the whole, the Allies weren't fighting to save the Jews. The people who weren't ignoring the plight of people who were being persecuted and murdered were those who did not believe in violence. The fact that this notion isn't commonly understood, and probably likely to be rejected by many, says a lot about the way we are taught history and even our values. Their story runs so counter to so many of the views that we have about life, about religion, about what is effective in such a situation, that, uh, you know, we're reluctant to let in that challenge, but we, we really must. 
Pierre has one interesting theory as to why rescue is so often discounted in our histories of World War II. It really was, to a significant extent, a female activity. And I think that history is mostly, mostly, not exclusively, and less and less, but certainly was traditionally written by men, get more excited about the clash of weapons on a battlefield, even when the battle produces no important result, than they are about the weapons of the spirit. The reason women played such a key role should be fairly obvious. It was often the woman who was at home when somebody knocked at the door. We certainly have in Magdat an example of how dynamic these women could be. This speaks to the very nature of what makes nonviolent resistance so potent. It is available to everyone, and therefore allows for the greatest level of participation. And numbers matter when you are trying to defeat an evil like the Nazis. As political scientist Erica Chenoweth has noted to some acclaim recently, it may take only 3.5% of a population actively involved in nonviolent resistance to topple an authoritarian regime. That's still, sadly, a far cry from Patrick's statistic that 1 in 200 did anything to help a Jewish person. But it gives you an idea of what it might have taken for the occupied countries of Europe to have completely stymied the Nazis and perhaps saved millions of lives. That sort of thing did actually happen in some countries, notably Norway and Denmark. But there are too many other factors at play, like varying levels of anti-Semitism, support for the Nazis, and just general societal organization to go too far down this rabbit hole of what-ifs. It's more important to look at what actually happened and to learn from that. So, what else can we say about rescue work? Well, here's something that should speak more to the self-interest that we all possess. There used to be a really old cliché, which, which was that the, the good die young. And the reality is, I've come to realize, the good die old. They aren't as stressed as other people. And they die usually frequently in their beds, surrounded by their loved ones. And it's not hard to imagine why. People derive strength and satisfaction and gratification and happiness from facing problems and responding appropriately to them. This was something Catherine Combesides told me when she was reflecting on her teenage years in Le Chambon during the war. If you recall, her family sheltered Jews at one point. When we thought there was nothing we could do, because we were occupied, because the Germans were heartless and did terrible things. When you thought, oh dear, there's nothing we can do. When you're active like this, that is something you can do. And that felt very good, to do something, no matter how small, in the right direction. So what the people of Le Chambon and its surrounding villages were doing was, on the one hand, very simple. They were acting out of necessity. Necessity for the people in danger, but also for their own sanity. On the other hand, what they were doing was deeply revolutionary because it posed a threat to any power that sought to divide and conquer. A rescue is we're talking about similarity between human beings. At a time where Hitler was speaking about difference, radical differences, the belief in the common humanities will stop us from future genocide. The key is never to turn away 
the key is to realize that the other is you in another form. There are, of course, people and communities embodying this belief today. Scott Warren of the Arizona-based humanitarian group No More Deaths is one example. A federal jury recently acquitted him on charges of harboring undocumented immigrants for having provided food, water, and shelter to two Central American men traveling through the desert. Warren has argued that this sort of help is common practice where he's from and that it's not going to stop, no matter how much the authorities try to discourage people from doing it. This is him speaking on Democracy Now! earlier this year. Every day in the border region, uh, migrants, refugees, uh, people who are coming across the border, who are coming through the desert, who are suffering, who are at risk of dying, are knocking on people's doors and they're in need of water, they're in need of food, they're in need of basic medical care and basic necessities. And people all across the border region are continuing to respond by offering these folks a glass of water, um, by offering them some rest or some food. Uh, And frankly, I don't see that changing. Elsewhere in the United States, there's been an upsurge in sanctuary cities, or places that have pledged to resist immigration enforcement. While the level to which they are willing to resist varies, and the movement itself is still somewhat undefined, it has become one of the more visible stands taken against the Trump administration. Less talked about are the 1,100-plus houses of worship across at least 25 states that are offering sanctuary to undocumented immigrants, a trend that certainly echoes with the story of Le Chambon. Meanwhile, in Europe, there are people like Carola Raketa, the captain of a rescue ship run by the German charity Sea Watch, which has saved the lives of more than 37,000 migrants. In June, Raketa was arrested in Italy after attempting to disembark 40 migrants who had been picked up at sea. Although some of the charges she faced have since been dropped, Raketa is still under investigation for human trafficking. Well, one of the questions which is asked very often, would I do it again? Yes, of course. Um, There's a huge need for ships to be out there. People are dying every day, so of course I would do it again. I mean, it's our common border, it's our responsibility. More ships create a better possibility for people to arrive alive to the other side of that ocean. Given that we're in the midst of another refugee crisis and rising authoritarianism around the world, you might be wondering what people who lived through the World War II era are thinking. People like the refugees who were sheltered in Le Chambon. It is terrifying to me because that's exactly the pattern I see, a pattern of growing fascism in Mm. this country. That's Renee Kahn-Silver. I see tremendous analogies It is such an overwhelming uh, situation. Hannah Liebman doesn't mince words either. You know, when I heard this person, Mr. Trump, (laughs) speak for the first time, I said, Hitler. If that sounds extreme, just remember that she lived in Nazi Germany, so she knows what she's talking about. And when I spoke with her, she was particularly concerned about the dreamers, the undocumented young people seeking a path to citizenship. Now we have the story with these young people who were brought here by their parents. We want to throw out 800,000 young people. This is unheard of. It is beyond comprehension. Peter Feigl feels much the same way. Here's a man who's telling the police, rough them up. Mm-hmm. You know, you're being, you're being too, too kind to them. 
Okay, well, that's what the Nazis were very good at roughing off people. All right? And mm-hmm. I, they also had the blessing of the Fuhrer to do that. I am scared and I am reliving the past. I saw this before. This is why all of these former refugees and survivors continue to speak to audiences about their experiences during the war. Hannah, who recently turned 95, regularly visits her local college in Queens. What I tell the students is they have to respect one another. They have to respect the other person as they want to be respected. Then I will ask them, I said, what does hate do to you? And they look at me. And I will say, well, you know what it does to you? It kills your soul. And what about the rescuers? What might they think? Well, again, it's not surprising. Well, they've been destroyed. I think they are turning over in the the ashes are turning over in the container. I don't think they could imagine such bad tragedies. This is Nellie talking about her parents, Magda and Andre Trokme. They knew humanity as frailties, but to go to the point where we are now takes a lot of negative imagination. Similarly, Mark Whitaker expects his grandfather, Edward Tace, would be utterly devastated by the world today. I think he really would have been upset by, even before the Trump era, about the kind of income inequality that we have in America today. More than just the policies themselves, though, Mark said his grandfather would be upset by the nature of the discourse. The total lack of kindness and compassion and just the way people deal with each other in political life. All of his heroic actions were rooted in very simple religious ideas. You know, and, and as a result, he didn't think of himself as a crusader. I think he just thought of somebody who was you know, using his position to live what he preached. It's worth noting, however, that not everyone in Le Chambon was motivated by religion. Magda, despite being the wife of a minister, wasn't driven by any kind of adherence to Christianity. Her spiritual views were more universal. Two ideas seem fundamental to me. We wouldn't have deeply rooted in us a sense of ideals and hope, a need for justice, truth, and love, no matter what our religion or degree of civilization, if there were not somewhere a wellspring of hope, justice, truth, and love, and it is that wellspring that I call God. So, at the end of the day, the beliefs that drove the rescuers were beliefs everyone can relate to. And so, if you want to talk about what do we do about the state we're in right now, I think it shows that there are ways of of participating that aren't just waiting till the next presidential election. There are ways of participating that aren't even directly political. I think there are other ways of sort of in civic society, vis-a-vis your neighbors, people you come into contact with, you know, on a regular basis, that you can kind of spread the spirit of what they were doing in Le Chambon. This idea of community is actually something Magda spoke about as being crucial to what happened on the plateau. It is important to know that we were a bunch of people together. This is not a handicap, but a help. If you have to fight it alone, it is more difficult. But we had the support of people we knew, of people who understood without knowing precisely all that they were doing or would be called to do. None of us thought that we were heroes. We were just people trying to do our best. Despite knowing how devastated her parents would be to see the state of the world today, 
Nellie still has no doubt her parents would approach the problems we're facing in the same way they always did. Oh yes, they would be involved all the way. Absolutely, because that's what they did. But since they're not here, the next best thing she can do is share their story. I think we need to hear that there's good in the world. And I'm very proud to be able to speak about what they did, to say that um, there is possibility of goodness even in an evil world. Any story of rescue or goodness, whether it's the one that happened during World War II or anywhere else, is like a lesson that should be listened to and copied if possible. We have to have hope. If we don't have hope, then we're finished. Magda weighed in on this point as well toward the end of her life. We must not be afraid to be discussed in books or in articles and reviews because it may help people in the future to try to do something, even if it is dangerous. Perhaps there is also a message for young people and for children, a message of hope, of love, of understanding, a message that could give them the courage to go against all that they believe is wrong, all that they believe is unjust. Maybe later on in their lives, young people will go through experiences of this kind, seeing people murdered, killed, or accused improperly, racial problems, the problem of the elimination of people, of destroying perhaps not their bodies, but their energy, their existence. They will be able to think that there always have been some people in the world who tried, who will try to give hope to give love, to give help to those who are in need, whatever the need is. When people read this story, I want them to know that I tried to open my door. I tried to tell people, come in, come in. There's just one more thing I want you to hear from Magda. And this time, it's her actual voice. Remember that in your life, you'll be across lots of circumstances that will need a kind of courage, a kind of decision of your own. Not about other people, but about yourself. I would not say more. I began this series by saying we all need stories that give us hope and help us see that it's possible to overcome the evil that exists in our world. And that's the point I want to end on as well. But it's important to also note that the hope is only real if it is followed by action. There are migrants and refugees that desperately need help today. Helping them can take many forms and may not necessarily look like what happened in Le Chambon. But by engaging in whatever way we can, by not turning away, we will still be following in their footsteps. Thank you for listening to City of Refuge. I hope you've enjoyed this remarkable story of resistance and rescue. While this is the final episode of the 10-part series, there may actually be some bonus episodes coming soon, so keep an eye out. And if you haven't already, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Another thing that helps is your financial support. Putting together this 10-part series over the last two and a half years has been a serious labor of love. As a reminder, Waging Nonviolence, the publication behind this podcast, is a nonprofit movement media platform, and we rely on a grassroots funding model to make this work possible. 
Visit wagingnonviolence.org support to learn about our membership program and the many gifts available when you sign up, starting at just $3 per month. You can also make one-time donations. All contributions to Waging Nonviolence are tax-deductible. City of Refuge was written, edited, and produced by me, Brian Farrell. Magda and Andre Trokme were performed by Ava Eisenson and Brian McCarthy. Our theme music and other original songs are by Will Travers. We also heard music by Chris Zabriskie. This episode was mixed by David Tattashore. Special thanks to Robert Gardner for the clip of Magda Trokme you heard at the end of the episode. It came from his 1985 documentary, Courage to Care. Finally, I want to say thank you to everyone who helped and participated in the making of this series. I'm going to attempt to run through all the names right now and say a little bit about what they did. First is my wife, Jessica Lieber, who not only appeared in part four, but supported me throughout the making of this series. She's an incredibly talented journalist who edited all of my scripts and helped me whenever I was stuck, which was often. Next, I want to thank my colleague, Eric Stoner, who first introduced me to the story of Le Chambon over a decade ago and who read all my scripts ahead of time. Jasmine Faustino, who read early scripts and provided feedback on episodes before they were released. She also voiced Madeline Dreyfus in one episode. Brian McCarthy and Ava Eisenson, who brought the words of Andre and Magda Trokme to life and really infused the series with their positive energy. David Tattashore, who provided his audio expertise throughout and helped me learn Pro Tools. Will Travers, who wrote the wonderful original music for this series. He also listened to episodes ahead of release, gave me vital feedback, and voiced Danielle Trokme. Patrick Henry, who encouraged me from the beginning, answered many questions throughout, and connected me with Nellie Hewitt. Nellie, of course, was the backbone of this entire project, connecting me to just about everyone I interviewed. She also read and corrected my scripts. I can't thank her enough for her hospitality, generosity, and dedication. Thanks also to everyone else who took time to speak with me. The survivors, Peter Feigl, Renee Kahn-Silver, Hannah and Max Liebman, filmmaker Pierre Sauvage, Edward Tace's daughter, Jean Tace Whitaker, and her son, Mark Whitaker, Catherine Cambesades, who lived in Le Chambon during the war, Philip Halley's daughter, Michalina Halley, and Carrie Lane at Queensboro Community College. I also need to thank all those who documented the story of Le Chambon before me and whose work aided me in my writing. Pierre Boismeron for his 2014 book, Magda and Andre Trochme, Resistance Figures, translated by Joanne Elder. Christophe Chalamet for his 2013 book, Revivalism and Social Christianity. Deborah Durlin Desay and Karen Gray Ruel for their 2012 book, Hidden on the Mountain. Peter Gross for his extremely well-researched 2015 book, A Good Place to Hide. Philip Halley for his 1979 book, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed and the 1997 book, Tales of Good and Evil, Help and Harm. Patrick Henry for his 2007 book, We Only Know Men. Carol Rittner for the 1985 book, Courage to Care, which accompanied the aforementioned documentary by Robert Gardner. Pierre Sauvage for his landmark 1989 film, Weapons of the Spirit. Richard Unsworth for his 2012 book about the Troke Maze called Portrait of Pacifists. Mark Whitaker for his 2011 memoir, My Long Journey Home. Next up, thanks to the institutions that house some of the resources used in this series. The Swarthmore College Peace Collection, which is home to Andre and Magda Trokme's papers. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, which conducted extensive interviews with survivors rescued by the Plateau. 
They permitted use of these interviews as well as many of the photos on waging nonviolence. For more information, please go to our website, wagingnonviolence.org. There, you'll find the list of names I just read, transcripts, photos, and much more. <laughs>